After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Baseball America podcast. This is a draft show. I'm Carlos Colazzo, draft writer here at Baseball America, joined by Peter Flaherty, our college writer, draft writer extraordinaire. Uh, how are you doing, Peter? Good. I'm fired up to talk draft with you, and, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. It's been too long since we've last touched base. Um, hopefully, we can avoid any any gambling talk. I know that, that gambling is all the rage these days. I know you and Teddy spoke about it at length. Uh, on the college podcast, but I'm a bit sad that you guys even had to touch sports gambling because I think, at least for me, I'm so over gambling in general and I hate seeing it in front of my face constantly. Um, but hopefully we'll just talk players today, Peter. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds perfect to me. <laughs> All right. So today, there are a few directions we can head off the bat. Um, there are a few players that I wanted to get into just because they're performing so well and, and we haven't talked about them. Uh, a ton so far on on this podcast Uh, i'm not sure how much you and teddy have touched on these players i'm sure in some capacity we've written about them and and talked about them but just feel like they deserve a little bit of attention but as we record this podcast there is a new mock draft on the website it's version 2.0 the second full first round mock draft we've done for the 2023 class this year Uh, if you're not counting our way too early mocks that we do i think the day after the draft and then we, we typically do one around december just for fun, these mocks, it's still like we're still too far out to have any real conviction, especially after you get outside of like really the first five players and picks or so this year, it seems like is where the, the significant tier break is. Uh, but there's still so much that's going to change over the next few weeks. We haven't even finished the college regular season, although that is nearing to a close as we speak. Postseason is coming shortly. Regionals are going to get started. Supers and and certainly how college players perform in those events are going to be crucial. How players perform in summer leagues before the draft will be crucial. Workouts will play a role. It feels like on the prep side, the Northeast is really buzzing this time of year. This this feels like the stretch in the calendar when there are a lot of cross-checkers and directors that are running up into the Northeast to see a lot of these prep arms, prep players. Um, so still a ton of moving parts. And really I think the caveat should be said with every mock draft that (laughs) we know less than the mock draft probably implies and I really always try to hammer home that like it's a lot of guesswork and it's hard to do a full mock draft when the teams themselves aren't sure who they're taking but with all of that said Peter what did you think of this mock draft were there any surprises to you did you come away thinking of the class a little bit differently Um, because I have to say I think the last few weeks or so, I've had a little bit of cold water thrown on on how much I like this draft class from the industry, 
And I'm hoping it's just because there's no consensus in the first round rather than the talent is not as good as we expected because I do still think it's a very strong draft class. I think it's a really strong class, especially at the top. I think you have two borderline generational type talents with Dylan Cruz and Paul Skeens that are looking like that'll be the one in the first and second overall picks. Again, you never know what's going to happen until the names are actually called on draft night, no matter how much we might think we know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think those are two generational talents at the top, which is rare for a draft. And then I think that you've got five outside of like these five to 10 or 11 names that outside of really scenes and Cruz. And then on the high school side, Jenkins, Clark, and you can throw Langford in there to make, to make that kind of core five. That mm-hmm. seems to be the consensus top five right now, prospect wise. Yeah you can kind of shuffle for the most part, a lot of these names in any way that you want, Um, which I think I wouldn't say makes this draft class, I guess it doesn't stand out, but um, Mm -hmm. it's going to make for a lot of fun because I mean, one guy I saw was Braden Taylor down at 26 and and sure he hasn't had the best season and um, numbers wise, he hasn't been great, but that was a guy that preseason was getting, top 10 love and even after the first couple of weekends was getting top 10 buzz and mm-hmm. i still think that while 26 is a better spot for him right now than in the top 10 he's someone who could absolutely go in the middle of the first round and then really after those first five i think what's going to make this draft really fun is that i think they're gonna inevitably be a lot of surprises in the first round with who goes and mm-hmm. who doesn't go um, so that's what I'm most looking forward to. The only real deficiencies in the on the college side, at least, is it's a little thin on the catching side. And then college lefties, which is a very specific demographic. Yeah, there aren't a ton. There isn't a slam dunk first rounder as we've had in years past. And you can go check out Carlos's piece on that if you want to actually get the details. But um, yeah, the college le- lack of college lefties and then the lack of college catching are the only two real knocks on yeah. the class. But other than that, I'm I'm very excited about it because I think that not only are there going to be a handful and and potentially dozens of major leaguers from this class, um, there are guys who have a chance to be real difference makers and organizational like changers for whoever they get drafted to, like Cruz and Skeens, namely. But mm-hmm. um, I th- I think that's what makes this class super exciting. Yeah, I, I think every year it's always fun to see like how the puzzle gets put together on draft day. And I think I'm kind of waiting for the draft class where everyone's like, yeah, we know how this one's going. Because it feels like no matter what players you have and what the talent pool is, everyone kind of thinks it's going to be a little bit crazy. I guess 2019, people felt reasonably confident and it. It maybe is shaping up similar to this class. In 2019, we had a very clear tier of six players at the top. Heading into the draft class, everyone felt confident in those six guys going. And because you had Adley Rutschman as like this clear-cut player who Dylan Cruz might be that player in this year's draft class. Uh, and then you had Bobby Wood Jr., who was so consistently tied to the Royals at the time. And it seems like most people also viewed him as like the clear-cut number two player in the class. Everything kind of fell after that pretty pretty cleanly, I guess I should say. And, and maybe this top five group will kind of solidify and we'll get those um, similar ties to specific teams with players 
I don't think it's that clear just yet. Maybe maybe as we get closer to the draft, that will happen. But I do agree with you. It. I always kind of want to leave some room for doubt here just because, like last year, Kamar Rocker going number three overall, that's something that no one really expected. I, I certainly didn't anticipate him going near that high. I thought that was a really bold pick from the Rangers. I, I We didn't have a great feel for where Rocker was going because we'd heard some like early teens leading up to the draft and like, oh, does he like fall to a team with multiple picks and get paid over slot? And then he goes to three. So I'm always leaving room for surprises here. But all of the conversations that I've had with people in the industry, it does seem like that group of five players that you mentioned, Dylan Cruz, Paul Skeens, Walker Jenkins, Wyatt Langford, and Max Clark, seem like that kind of top tier. And then the teams picking after that five range, it seems like they're doing just a lot of work, scrambling, trying to figure out which players they need to go see again, who they need to bear down on. You probably can't feel too confident in any players outside of that five either being available to you or, or being or not being available. So you just have to do a lot of work and you have to send people in a lot of places around the country to just make sure that you're evaluating them all. So I don't uh, I don't envy all of the people in scouting departments who are kind of in, in charge of the logistics and the planning and the scheduling because it is going to be hectic for a lot of the industry as we get down to it. One One player that I wanted to touch on who I think could join this top group and make it a group of, of six, but to this point he's kind of fallen out of that, is Chase Dolander. He has not been great this year. I mentioned in the mock draft that the walk rate has doubled from a year ago. Just the command, we, we've talked about it before, and we don't have to go on at length about it because I think it's a lot of the same stuff that we've mentioned before, but I do think he's a player who teams kind of want to see that flash from 2022. They want to see him perform and I think he could maybe push himself back into that range because teams desperately want legitimate, bona fide stud college pitchers at the top of the draft. And I think there's a little bit of hesitance about kind of how the performance of this college pitching class um, has panned out to this point. And I think Dollander not being the guy he was a year ago plays a large role in that. Um, Hurston Waltrip doesn't have the same numbers that, that maybe you would want to see from a top half of the first round player but both of these guys i think have great stuff and they have track records and history that you could maybe still feel comfortable with whether that's because you're confident that they'll figure it out or you're confident in your player development or you're confident in the fact that something is going on in college that that you think might be an easy fix so those two specifically dolander and waldrip i think they have a lot of uh, opportunity in the next few weeks to kind of boost their draft stock and i feel like dolander specifically I think he still has a chance to get into that top tier. What do you think? Is it is it too late for that? Are you with me or are you uh, more pessimistic on Dolander at this point? So comparing him to the top five of, if we have a top five of Cruz in no order, Cruz, Skeens, Langford, Jenkins, and Clark. Mm-hmm. If we have that top five and then you're, you're comparing Dolander and Waldrop to him, I just find it, it's going to be hard for, I think, either of them to, to crack through that ceiling and get into that top five. But I will say that Dolander absolutely could go six. I know we mentioned his struggles this year and I was trying to look at some video and, and see where they might stem from because the pitch usage hasn't been an issue. That's been about the same as it was last year where he had that excellent season for Tennessee. Yeah. Um, but mechanically it looks like he's just a teeny bit off. His arm sometimes lags a little bit Yeah. and he misses, especially to the arm side a little bit. 
the the one thing I, so i had asked about this early on because we were looking into the data that we had available the fastball velocity is still there it, it's pretty much the exact same fastball velocity on average that he had a year ago it's like right at 95 96 which is a great fastball um and i just asked around i think it was when we were doing a piece kind of comparing the top four college players who at the time and i think even still with dollander sliding a bit um, it was Cruz, Langford, Skeens, and Dolander. And we were basically comparing and contrasting the two hitters versus the two pitchers. And I'd had some conversations with with scouts who thought that Dolander was just a little bit off in his delivery. The balance was a little bit different from 2022. It was a little more quad dominant. He wasn't stacked properly over the rubber. And that was causing maybe um, some sinking issues with, with his release point. And, and maybe that's why the command has backed up a little bit. Maybe that is why the shape on the fastball and the slider is backed up a little bit. And if it's just like a very subtle delivery issue, um, out of sync for whatever reason, um, I think that should be an easy fix. But it's also such a minor thing. You look at it on video and you try and pinpoint what's going on. And it's it's just very subtle little things that it might be. And it, it just might be something totally different. So I'm curious to see if we ever get an answer to that. Yeah, and, and baseball, it's such a cliche saying, but baseball is a game of inches where it's like if it's an inconsistency in his landing spot, if his arm is lagging just a little bit, because like you said, it's not a velo thing. It's really not a pitch usage thing. If we could get into the nitty-gritty of pitch usage by count, maybe we could discover something there. But in just looking at it at a surface level, it's neither of those two things. And so I think it's just, as you mentioned, and as we touched on, is just an inconsistency in his deliveries. And we've seen it in in some of his starts specifically that gonzaga start was was really um was it was a really good one for me i got a good look at him um and we've seen the stuff he has it's 95 to 97 with run that he can command a plus breaking ball flashes of a plus change up so it's like you're looking at three plus pitches and a potential you know three maybe two starter in a in an organization so i mean it's going to be hard to pass up on that for a while if a specific club views him as such and then herson waldrop is a really interesting case to me i think he has as much upside as a pitcher um as anyone in the draft just i mean if you watch him pitch of course there's reliever risk there when you watch him there's some effort um they're really just namely the effort is is a um is a little bit of a a knock against him, but the stuff is undeniable. He's been up to 96 to 98, touching a hundred with his fastball um, that has really good carry to it. He's got two plus breaking balls. That slider is absolutely demonic. Um, That's a borderline 70 pitch. And then you watch his split change, which has really progressed since he's arrived at Florida. That's another pitch. I'd, I'd, I'd put a strong six, maybe even a seven on yeah so i said in our and in the, in the write-up that like you could conservatively put four pluses on him and i think you just outlined that case right there pretty nicely it, exactly i mean that's a very he's a really rare case in the draft where i don't know how many other guys you can slap four plus pitches on i don't i think he might be one of a kind in that sense and the numbers aren't to boot but again that might be a little bit of a testament to a a pitch usage type of thing. Um, I'm, I, I kind of question the use of the fastball a little bit, um, but the, the stuff is there and he can get <clears throat> really good hitters with it out and make them look silly. So we've seen it in years past where guys go to Hoover and lead their teams to Omaha with a couple of 
really, really strong starts, and that boosts them into the you know, top 10 of the draft, top five maybe even in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw it last year with Cade Horton. But um, I think that while the top five might be a little bullish on him, that someone like Hurston Waldrop could absolutely pitch himself into the top 10 and maybe be the second pitcher selected off the board outside of after Paul Skeens. Yeah, I don't think that would surprise me really. I'm reminded a little bit of Shane McClanahan in some ways with Hurston Waldrop because Shane McClanahan at the time in college coming out of South Florida, there were a lot of questions about him being a reliever at the next level. He never threw strikes at a a rate that would give you a lot of confidence that he would be a starter. Now, granted, he was left-handed. That's that's another element in this that you, you would favor the lefty with kind of elite stuff versus the righty with elite stuff. But I do think like in terms of the value that teams might have on him versus the production um, and the efficiency that he's showing right now in college baseball. If, if you believe that you can, whether it's a pitch mix question or whether it's an approach question at the next level, if you believe in any capacity that you can help him throw more strikes, which the Rays clearly have proven that they've been able to do with a number of different pitchers, Waldrop looks all the more interesting because of the upside that you cited. I mean, Shane McClanahan walked four batters per nine in 2017 he walked almost six per nine in 2018 his draft year um went in the back of the first round we had him ranked i think inside the top 10 at that point i believe that 2018 year was also the year that the rays had a bunch of picks and they had extra bonus pool money so that could certainly be a factor in why he he went where he did um but waldrop waldrop is also kind of that guy it's a 13 percent walk rate i think this year it's been kind of hovering around 10 percent his entire career um i just think that you look at the stuff you look at the upside someone is going to fall in love with it someone's going to take a chance on it even if there is risk there like it's very hard to get a frontline pitcher in general and when you look at the pure stuff the arm speed the athleticism he's still third in the country in strikeouts right now 102 strikeouts and the 35% strikeout rate. So it only takes a little bit more control for him to start looking pretty dominant. Um, and maybe it's weird to see a, a guy with a 507 ERA in the middle of the first round, but I don't know. If you look at all this stuff, it, it's not too shocking to me. I don't think it's crazy. And then you, like, sorry to, to keep going on, but no, please. Just looking at, and then just looking more at the middle of the first round, especially on the pitching side, with the lack of college lefties, and the upside of this player in general, like there's a, like how far does a pitcher like Thomas White end up falling? Because, you know, you look at Frank Mazzucato from, from, you know, 2021 and where the Royals took him at seven and it was viewed as a little bit of a reach. Um, and honestly, they're, they're really two different pitchers, so it's tough to compare them. But it's another prep lefty projectable. White actually probably has the better stuff. Then yeah. definitely has way better stuff than Mazzucato had coming out of. Yeah, out he of maybe high could school. give Frankie Frankie Mott's the breaking ball, but I think outside of that, everything would be Thomas White's favor. He might have the breaking ball, but White has the you know the effortless upper nineties velo. He's got a better changeup at this point. Um, size, the size, and the the pro type body. So um, not to knock Frankie because he's a excellent pitcher and he's had a really good year this far so far so so far this year 2.28 era 23 innings in low a striking out a ton walking a bit more than you'd see if he can get the walks under control i think he's really going to take off but it has been a good year for him so far yeah so he's so a frankie's doing really well but b 
Um, there's also an argument there for Thomas White maybe even to slip inside the top 10. I know yeah. that seeing him selected inside the first 10 picks would not be certainly not be out of the realm of possibility. Obviously you're kind of, you first look to the Royals at picking at eight. Mm -hmm. Um, They are not scared to take a Northeast prep lefty. So that's definitely a a spot where he could go. And then, you know, you never know where he, where someone like that could, could be selected because the upside with him and the ceiling is, is a front of the line starter. So yeah, those are rare to come by. I think that's a good call on the high school pitchers. And I'm very curious to see where Noble Meyer and where Thomas White go, because it, do, it does feel like they've gotten some top 10 buzz. Typically, as we approach um, the draft date, the industry kind of fades high school pitchers and pushes the college arms up, especially if we've got performing guys like Kate Horton in the college postseason. But we've got nothing but really positive reviews on both White and Noble Meyer, who if you don't want the lefty who's throwing upper 90s with these, Maybe you take the righty who's throwing upper 90s with ease and an absolute banger of a slider and maybe has a little bit more present control than Thomas White. Like, I think there's a, a big advantage to being left-handed in general, and, and Thomas White does have a really good changeup, which I think is, is solid for his profile to kind of neutralize um, right-handed hitters a bit more. The breaking ball actually sounds like it's improved. Ben Badler's been out there to see Thomas uh, a few times this spring, and he said the breaking ball has looked as good as he's seen. Thomas throw that pitch. And I think, I think Ben's probably seen Thomas white as much as anyone in the industry at this point. Um, but yeah, where, where these two guys go will be really interesting because I think on talent, you could make a case at this point. I think you can make a case that noble Meyer and or Thomas white are the second best pitchers in the class on talent. If you wanted to, if you were, if you were kind of glass half empty on chase Dolander or you just didn't love the strikes for Waldrip, or you just weren't really excited about the pure upside and stuff of Rhett Louder, who we haven't touched on, but has been maybe the most consistent pitcher in college baseball outside of Paul Skeens and and maybe a couple others, but he's posted every week. Like I think there's a, a very strong case to be made, especially if you're not really afraid to take a risk that after Skeens, Noble Meyer and Thomas White give you maybe the best upside in this class on, on the pitching front. And and Meyer's a guy that I, I at least on the prep side I'm particularly bullish on. Um, and I know that prep arms are a particularly slippery, dangerous demographic, whatever you want to call it. But it's hard to find someone with his polish, with the mm-hmm. stuff that he has. Um, he's a bona fide starter. He's been up to 98, holding it through the through the entire outing. He's got a hellacious slider, really good changeup. Um, I think that he's as polished as, as maybe some of these college arms are. And I mean, if there's, I, I think that if any prep arm were to go after skins in that second pitcher selected, I think it would probably be Meyer, mm-hmm. um, with white, just like some of the concerns I have a little bit, he'll spray it, um, which, you know, that's something that you can fix. And then he gets a little, I think, hurried with traffic on the bases, little bit long in his delivery again i'm poking holes and nitpicking because he's mm-hmm. an outstanding prospect but i think that i'd probably give the slight edge to to noble meyer yeah i think i'd be with you there i mean we've gotten some people who really like him or are giving comparisons to mick abel and andrew painter sort of the like pure stuff that mick abel was showing in high school with a bit more of the touch and polish that andrew painter had at the time noble doesn't have the complete four pitch mix that that andrew painter had at this stage uh, but I think his slider is a full grade or better than where Andrew Painters was in high school. 
um, Andrew Painter slider that he has now or, or that he had in pro ball prior to, to getting some some injury stuff happened with him was pretty significantly better than the slider he was showing in high school, I would say. Um, and Myers is arguably a 70-grade pitch now, which is, is pretty impressive. But let's get further into this draft class here. Um, the one thing that jumped out to me as I was putting this mock together is there's a lot of really polarizing profiles, maybe more so than most years. Um, and I'm not sure if it just happens to be because of the the player demographics that we have. There just happen to be a lot of different styles in terms of, of hitters, in terms of skill sets, in terms of um, just just different unique players. Maybe we don't get this sort of mix every year, or maybe it's just the case that the rules are different at the big league level now. And so there are more styles of play that, that teams think could be beneficial for them. So I wanted to go through a couple of the most polarizing profiles that I had in the middle of the first first round and see if you were more towards the high camp or more towards the low camp on those profiles. Um, and just see where we agree and where we disagree. So the first one is going to be Enrique Bradfield. In the mock draft, I had him number 11 overall to the Angels. Uh, he's an outfielder at Vanderbilt. One of the most unique players in the class, 80-grade runner, 80-grade defensive ability. He's a guy who's taken 124 bags at a 92% success rate. He also maybe has 30 power. Um, is not a very physical player, very skinny, very lean, very wiry. Probably not a guy who's going to add a ton of strength and, and add to that power in the future. And I think as we've seen base running become more of an option at the big league level uh, with a lot of the rule changes that that help increase batting average on balls in play, like his skill set all of a sudden looks more attractive now than maybe it did two or three years ago. I've gotten some people who think he's a top half of the first round kind of player because his defensive ability and speed is just so much better than you're getting even from like a 70 runner like I mean, some people think that Bradfield is like breaking the scale in terms of speed and defense, which is crazy. Um, and then there are some people who look at him and they don't like the speed-oriented college outfield profile. They want more impact in the bat in the first round. If you look at some players of his size um, with his sort of power projections, it's a lot of more second-round types in the past. So I know of some people who really don't think that, that he's a first-rounder, but as the draft works, the high man is always going to kind of get the guy are you more towards the high camp with Bradfield or are you more towards the low because I think I'm probably a little towards the lower end just because I've I feel like I've been burned in the past on defense first speed oriented center fielders who have some offensive question marks and I don't know I'm kind of afraid to I would be, I would be afraid to be the high man on Bradfield I guess is how I'd say it where are you at Sure. So I'd say I'm I'm more towards 11 than I am in the back half of the first round. I just I look at a the new rules where I think that he could be a 60 to 70 stolen base guy in a 162 game season, maybe even a little higher than that. Um, and then I also look at the defense. He's an 80 defender. He I think he's got Gold Glove defender type written all over him at the big league level. He's got game breaking speed, and so now you're talking about two 80 grade tools. And with his combine that with his elite hand eye and great bat to ball skills, you're probably looking at either a, I'd say a, a 60 hit. So you're now you've got two eighties, a six, and then the three power. Um, and then not to mention off the field with the makeup. Um, Coach Corbin has 
raved about him as a leader, as someone who was led by example since the second he stepped on campus. Really well-spoken kid. He's got elite baseball sense. I think you're looking at the total package of while he's not as physical and not going to bring as much power to a game that in today's baseball powers become so prevalent and so important. Um, while it's a little bit of a risky profile, I think he's a one-off type guy where you say, okay, this guy doesn't come around, you know, in every draft and every draft, you're going to get a burner and every draft you're going to get a defense first guy. But I don't think in every draft, you're going to get someone who has the, the mix of skills that Bradfield has. Mm -hmm. So I think that, He's someone that I'm particularly high on. I, I wouldn't yeah. be shocked to even see him go in the if a team really wants to reach for him, maybe even in the back half of the top ten. But I think he more I ends up. I would love to see him drafted by the Rockies, just because I would love to see him in that outfield. That would be awesome. oh yeah, it would be it would be outstanding. But I think he more goes in that like eleven to fifteen range. But I, I I'm definitely in the higher camp on him. I just think that. It's tough to to nitpick his game other than the power, which mm -hmm. he's actually to his credit, he's he's shown it off this year a little bit. I mean, he's he's laid into balls when he's needed to and driven it into the into the pull side gap. And even at the pro level, while he's probably, you know, a five to, to eight, maybe a ten home run ceiling guy, uh, he's gonna be able to take an extra base on a ball in the gap, turn doubles and triples, singles into doubles. And even when he gets on with a single, he's he's going to end up on at least second really whenever he wants to because yeah. not only is he, a from a raw speed standpoint, sprint speed guy, does he have elite speed? He's so smart with how he runs. He doesn't just get on and run freely and, and make stupid outs on the base pass. He'll pick his spots when he wants to run, mm -hmm. which has led to this success rate. So he's a very smart baseball player to go on top of, on top of the tool set he has. Yeah, so th I think those are a lot of good points. I'm curious to see how his offensive game will play at the next level when he's facing better stuff more consistently. He has been a guy who's who's always walked more than he's struck out, which I like to see. I think he has a good understanding of the strike zone. I think he has really solid bat-to-ball skills, certainly above average, I'd say. I don't, I don't know if they're elite bat-to-ball skills, but I certainly think he's going to make enough contact, put the ball in play, and use his speed. I almost wonder, it seems crazy to think about a guy who already has a 93% success rate, like increasing that, but I wonder how easy it will be for him at the at the next level with bigger bases, with the pickoff rules to steal. Because he does it, to your point, not only is he an elite runner, he has fantastic baseball instincts and he is a very advanced base runner. There are players who have been fast in the past. I think Christian Pache is is a guy who I think of who who had all of these secondary tools that were 70 or better, defense, running, arm strength. Christian Pache was never the sort of base runner that Enrique Bradfield already is right now. So your point about him getting singles and then very quickly turning them into doubles is exciting to me. And I really hope that Bradfield pans out and is successful because I think the game is more fun when there are more offensive styles that are viable and successful. Um, there are just so few of them that I'm, I'm a little, I would be a little gun shy, I think in the top 15, I, I think I would look around and see some, some more power in this class and see some upside on the mound. And I think I would probably be too low to actually get him. If I was picking, if that makes sense, someone else would take him before I would. Um, but I really hope that, that he pans out because he's extraordinarily fun to watch play baseball. 
No doubt. Yeah, it, it'll be very – it's going to be fascinating to see where so many of these guys go because, mm-hmm. as we touched on, there's – a lot of guys have arguments to go very early on in the draft. So it's going to be interesting to see who pulls the trigger on some of these guys and who hesitates. Yeah. So the next guy I wanted to get into, and I think he was also next in this mock draft specifically, um, was Johan Morales, third baseman at Miami. He has long been a very polarizing player in this draft class, similar to Bradfield for me, for very, very different reasons than than Bradfield. Right now, he's hitting nearly 400 with a 466 on base percentage, 653 slug, 11 home runs, 12 doubles, uh, striking out at like a 19% rate, 11% walk rate. Um, but Yohandi is a guy who has power. He's got very easy raw power that you see in batting practice, just kind of just jumps off the bat. Um, without him even really trying to swing hard, it seems, half the time. But he's also been a guy who's consistently struck out around a 20% rate. He's chased a decent amount. Um, when I saw him in person this spring, the defense wasn't as good as I expected and as I've seen it before. But he's a solid athlete. He's got good arm strength defensively. He's got a great body that I think can add a lot more strength and, and add to the raw power that he already has now. Um, but I think he's very polarizing in terms of how teams view his pure hit tool, his swing decisions, the long levers, how that's going to work at the next level. Some people who buy into the athlete and the power think that he's going to be an impact defender or, or an impact hitter, I should say, who, who is a solid defender at third base. And then his detractors are more concerned uh, about whether or not he's going to get to that power in game um, and whether or not the the defense at third base is as advertised. So Again, on Yohandi, I have just always seen real pitch identification questions in person. And so I think, again, I'm, I'm probably on the lower end for Yohandi, but where are you at with him? So he's exceeded what I thought he was going to do at Miami this year, mm-hmm. um, which I still thought he was going to have a really good year. I didn't think he'd be hitting about 400 with a, a week and change left in the regular season. Um, but I'd say I'm probably in your camp where I'm a little lower on him. The defense has gotten better throughout the year. There was a particular, I it may have been the UNC series you were at or UVA, but he made a few nice plays in the UNC series to show flashes of kind of what he might have in the tank. Yeah. Um, obviously, that was, the, that was not the one I saw. I saw him at UVA and I felt like he didn't get to a couple of balls that I wanted to see him get to, but I have seen it in the past. So that doesn't shock me. Yeah. So he was like, when I saw him against UNC, he made a few nice plays defensively. I still am not super bullish on him as a defender. Obviously the frame at six four two hundred, it's a pro body. You can add some more strength and impact to it, but I'm with you where like, I'm not in love with the operation at the plate. I think he gets a little bit long at times. I think he's a little bit out of sync at times, um, which does lead to some swing and miss pulling off of some spin um and i think that there's constantly going to be some swing and miss to his game while he's cut down on it this year um there has been times it really i i'm with you against spin is where he really struggles with identifying it out of the hand he doesn't really see it all that well um and it just can kind of undress him a little bit at the plate at times Mm -hmm. and Johanny specifically for me seems to be a guy who who i've never seen on his good days like i look up at his overall production and it's very impressive uh, he's hit 300 in back-to-back seasons now. It would take a slump of, of all time to lower him below 300 for the season this year. Uh, with the college national team, who's the leading hitter when they went to Europe and actually played in games that mattered. But during training camp, I saw him like at his worst, seemingly. So I definitely have a 
a bias against Yohandi because just my in-person looks have never been his good games. And I think he maybe is that kind of streaky type player just given his offensive approach. But yeah, the chase concerns me across all pitch types. The swing and miss in general concerns me. The pitch recognition you mentioned, I think I think those would only be more concerning at the next level. But to his credit, I mean, he's performing and he has power and there's a ton of upside. So if someone... If someone pops him and thinks that there are things they can correct offensively, um, there's there's a significant impact that you could find here with Yohandi. But so we disagree on the first one with Enrique. We agree with Yohandi. Um, next player I wanted to ask about is has pretty much the entire time been tied to Yohandi or compared and contrasted with Yohandi because it's another college third baseman. It's another college third baseman who's performing. It's a college third baseman who's performing on the best team in the country right now. That is Brock Wilkin at Wake Forest. This one is is really perplexing to me because his numbers are up across the board. The big question with Wilkin was the strikeouts and not hitting above 300 at all in college, which people questioned like, okay, how good is the pure hit tool if you can't hit above 300 in college? How good is the pure hit tool if you're striking out at a 20% clip? Um He's walking, and I'm not sure if the strikeout rate is exact there, Peter. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But he's basically doubled his walk rate this year. He's hitting over 300 for the first time. And I was expecting to hear everyone in the industry push him up the board because of that. But I do think there are still some questions that scouts have on the swing itself, on the approach, and, and even more than Yohandi on the defensive ability at third base. So where are you at on Brock Wilkin, who has maybe 70 raw power, a cannon at third base in terms of arm strength, um, but it seems like split split opinions on on his pure hitting ability uh, and what the profile is going to be overall. I'll let you go first this time since I've gone first in the first two. So if we if we had Jeff Ponce on here, um, I think Brock even calling him his personal cheese ball, I think that would be selling it short because he is a. I think he is as big of a Brock Wilkin fan as you can probably find. Absolutely. Um, and so it's a really interesting comparison with with Brock and Yohandi because it it was something I was going to get into when talking about him, but I knew we'd get into Brock later. I'd probably take Wilkin over Yohandi right now. Um, I think that this year, while he has cut down on the swing and miss, it's clear that he's refined his approach. When he's swinging and missing, it is against spin. It is against changeup still, um, which I think will – I think with guys like that, it's not going to be an issue that – necessarily goes away in pro ball when the pitching only gets better. Um, but I think it is encouraging for him to have taken that step forward in his approach. The pitch recognition has gotten better. And as you said, it is 70 power. He does have a 70 arm over at third. Now the actions are another thing, but I, I think that you've got a, uh, a major league third, well, like a pro third baseman over there, um with with 70 power the hit tools progress the impact that he generates at the plate is consistently really quality Mm -hmm. um and then the operation just as a whole i like a lot better than um than yohandi it's a lot less long and they're similar in stature i think that they're both listed at six four but with yohandi he's got the barrel tip and he gets a little armsy sometimes wilkin is a little more compact and tight in his turns and really extends through the baseball with his strong forearms. Um, so I like that, I think, a little better than Yo-Yo. So I, I'd, I'd lean Wilkin over Yandy Morales. I think that you can kind of flip it any which way because you can be like, well, 
Yo-Yo is more projectable. He's going to add way more impact. You can clean up mm-hmm. his swing and all of that. Brock is much more of a finished product. Like this is who he's probably going to be yeah. throughout his career. But I'll take this present Wilkin and make the little tweaks that I need to to it as opposed to looking at a little bit more of a, a work in progress and drafting that good clay with yeah. Morales. Yeah, I think you summed it up beautifully. I think that is really the the kind of decision for me in terms of who I would take is is I feel like there are things that Morales can improve and maybe a, a professional hitting development um, could help him improve with the swing. I think th- I would... I'm probably lo- towards the lower end on both of these guys because I am very concerned just about how the swings are going to work at the next level regardless and how much swing and miss there is. But I think if I had to take one, I would probably lean Yohandi because I, I, I trust the the athletic foundation a little bit more. I think he is a much safer bet to play third base than than Brock. It wouldn't surprise me if Brock moved over to first base um, in short order in pro ball. I just think in terms of foot, footwork and hands and, and how he plays pretty high um, – I, I worry about him basically having a 70 tool at a position where a 30 would be just fine would be my concern. So the 70 arm doesn't really do a ton for me if I don't think he's going to stick at third. Um, but I'm willing to be wrong on all these players. But I think for these guys, I, I would probably lean Yohandi, even though I'm I'm kind of, as I'm talking through this, I'm, I'm probably towards the lower end on both of them. All right, let's get one high school player because I feel like in general, the high school players haven't been quite as polarizing as some of these college players in this class, but Arjun Namala does seem to be a player who has been consistently um, split campish in terms of how the industry views him. Um, he's exceptionally young for the class. He'll still be 17 on draft day, six foot one, 170 pounds shortstop, great actions defensively, doesn't have the greatest foot speed, isn't the biggest guy, but has elite uh, hand speed at the plate. Uh, very fast turn from the right side and it really showed surprising raw power last summer this spring he's gotten a lot of buzz as a player who could be potentially the first high school shortstop off the board that wouldn't be surprising at all if that happened Um, there are some people who are concerned about the overall swing decisions offensively Um, some of the swing and miss he has a little bit more than some other uh, prep um, colleagues of his in that department um, so the detractors would probably wonder about the offensive profile and the hit tool overall while his supporters would point to his extreme youth and the amount of time he still has to develop and improve some of those things where are you at with Namala Peter I'll let you go first on this one as well he's I think that he is about as polarizing a player in this draft and I've seen and I've heard buzz around him. People like him, not from the industry, but I've seen him as high as right outside the top five and as low as towards the end of the first round with him. And what's so tantalizing about him is obviously the age factor. He's still going to be very much a teenager on draft day. He's still going to be 17 and really like 17 and a little over a half. And that's really appealing because not only are you going to develop him physically, he's going to develop maturity wise too. So with some of these things that are currently holes in his game with the swing and miss, particularly the fastball swing and miss is a little bit concerning to me. Um, And I think in looking at his swing, it's something that he's cleaned up a little bit, but 
sometimes it's almost like he'll preset his barrel as he's loading. And then it's like, it's going to stay wherever he sets it throughout his whole swing. I'm mm-hmm. like demonstrating it now. It's not going to be on video, but the presetting <laughs> picture, of it, just picture Peter going through swing mechanics, right? And now. it's not pretty, so you're not missing anything, but <laughs> the, the presetting of the barrel is a little bit worrisome to me, but again, like he's a 17 year old kid popping one Oh fours, like one Oh fives with wood. And there's already present impact with him. Um, he's not an unreal athlete. And so there's no reason to think that like if in the draft, the one thing that you probably can't, there are a few things that in my mind, you can't improve. I think that one, anyone can be taught to hit for power, especially in today's day and age, but not anyone can be taught to hit. And also as far as athleticism goes, you can't really teach a guy to be an athlete. You've either got it or you don't, you can get, you can slim a bigger guy down and you can make someone more physical, but you can't, you can't more, you can't make a guy more of an athlete. So mm-hmm. with Namala, I think he lacks a little bit in the athleticism department, but I do think that with the actions he has, he's going to stick on the left side of the infield, whether that's at third base when he gets more physical or still at shortstop as a really good defender, um, he's going to stick on the left side. So I think that it is a very risky pick because I think that the ceiling is really, really high. I think the ceiling is an impact big leaguer. And then I think the floor is just about as low, which you can say that for a lot of players in the draft every year, but for sure, especially with him where he is so raw and so far from a finished product. Um, I think that's especially the case. Now I personally wouldn't take him in the top 10. Um, I'd probably take him more in that, I'd feel comfortable taking him in that 13 to 14 to 20 range mm-hmm. somewhere in the more so of the kind middle. of somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I'd, I'd say I'm right in the middle with him because I get the appeal. The age is really, really appealing. The impact that he can already generate is appealing mm-hmm. while there are some swing concerns and, and I don't necessarily love the swing and miss. Um, it is a really super quick and tight turn. Um, it's looked really explosive. The good with him looks really, really, really freaking good. So that's hard to ignore. So long story short, I'd, I'd say I'm right in the middle with him. Gotcha. I'm going to continue to be a bummer. I think I'm kind of on the low end with him for a lot of the hit questions that you mentioned. I think the the athlete questions uh, are good ones as well. It's a lot easier for me to not get as excited about the age compared to teams who have models who know how how well that, that will push players up on their board. Um, I, think, I think sometimes the age factor can be a little overrated, but... If you're young and you're performing really well against older competition, that is a very strong factor of your success moving forward. So the age will mean a lot more to me if he's performing in pro ball than it does currently, uh, although it's certainly a factor for teams that are going to be deciding on whether to take him this spring. I think I would take him towards the back end of the first, which I, I think puts me in the low camp for Namala. Um, but he is an exciting one, and the bat speed is legit, and the raw power always has been surprising to me for for a guy with his frame so i'm really curious to see what he looks like in six years um just how the body develops last one here on the the kind of polarizing profile player breakdowns is matt shaw shortstop for maryland he was the mvp of the cape cod league last summer this spring he's having a bit of a career year career best across the board in all the slash categories i think he's two homers away um, from his single season high that he set a year ago. He started off slow, has been on a bit of a rampage over the last month, two months maybe at this point. He's demolishing the ball in ACC play. He's currently on a 12-game hitting streak in ACC play. He's hitting 438, 543, 904 with 10 home runs, more walks than strikeouts. 
Um, with Matt Shaw, I'm honestly a little surprised about some of the detractors that he's had so far this spring. I think this maybe is a smaller a smaller range of opinions than some of the players we've touched on just because he's a college shortstop who most people think he's going to stick in the infield. But the questions around Shaw, I think, revolve around how good is the hit tool really? He's a guy who struck out a bit in the past. Um, and what is the defensive profile? I haven't heard a ton of people who are really confident that he's going to play shortstop at the next level. And so if he's not playing that premium defensive position, obviously the offensive bar is raised. I'm towards the higher end of Shaw. I know this is the first player that I'm on the high end for, so I'm probably a bit of a uh, bit of a Scrooge here on this episode. But I just love Shaw's power. I love the hands. I love the performance that he's shown this year. I think even if he's not a shortstop, I don't I don't really mind too much because if he's going to be a second baseman who's hitting for this sort of impact and he adds uh, a little bit of a speed threat as well, I just think he does a lot for you offensively as someone who I'm confident is going to be on the infield somewhere. Um, I'm in on the bat with Matt Shaw, I should say. I, I, it's just so impressive to me, some of the home runs that he's hit straight up the middle and kind of towards the right center gap where he hasn't even really been fully behind the ball with his lower half. I just think there's a lot of strength um, in the hands and in the forearms with Shaw. It's a very aggressive swing. Um, so I don't think he's going to be some great pure hitter, but I think he'll hit enough um, and get to enough power to be a, a solidly impactful hitter. So I'm with you in that I view him more as a second baseman when all is said and done than a shortstop. And then so with that being said, you kind of start comparing him to another or one of the top second basemen in the draft and Tommy Troy. And with those two, it is really like flipping a coin. I mean, it is whoever, whatever organization decides on either player, I think is getting an outstanding player. And there's an argument for either to go above or below one another. And it's so funny because Matt won MVP in the Cape. Tommy won top pro prospect. They're performing pretty similarly this year. Tommy has less home runs, but Matt also does play at Maryland where it is an absolute bandbox. But <laughs> I think what sold me on Shaw was his performance on the Cape this summer. And that's against the best arms, the best collegiate arms in the country. And you're playing with wood and you're kind of simulating a full season A environment, high A environment with the type of talent that's up there. And while it's not, while it's not literally high A, while it's not going to be what you see in high A, for the most part, on some nights, that's what it's going to look like. And he really performed there. He pulverized the baseball to all fields. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of strength in the hands. I really like his swing. It's a, it's a nice level horizontal operation that he can get into his power with. He hits against a close. He hits against a closed um, a front half this year that he's he's really able to explode off of. And and I, again, I I believe in the hit tool. I don't. I mean, excuse me. I believe in the impact that he can generate. Um, I am a little a little wary of the the swing and miss that's still there. And again, where I'm kind of nitpicking a little bit because you look at his stats and it's like he's walking way more than he's striking out. He has more extra base hits than he's striking out. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a little miss against fastballs. Um, he's actually seeing spin really well. He doesn't miss any spin that's in the zone, basically. Yeah. Zone miss rates under 10%. That's um, what I was going to mention specifically. I remember doing our preseason to-do list, and one of the questions for, for Shaw was the production versus secondaries. He ended the year with a 690 OPS versus secondaries. Currently, it's over 1,000 OPS versus secondaries. He's making a lot more contact overall. The miss rate is under 20% on sliders, changeups, and curveballs, which was certainly not the case for him in his first two years. So just the improved contact versus those pitch types makes me a little more confident in what the hit tool actually is. 
um, in addition to everything you're saying. I mean, it's career high walk rate, it's career low strikeout rate, um, it's impact. Uh, I, I just have I've come to really like Shaw at this point. Yeah, I and with you, I think that the hit, the the bat is going to be what carries him into wherever he gets drafted. Um, I think he's got decent actions on the dirt where he'll be fine at second base. Um, and then just listening to him, and this is just a little bit of a thing. Even just listening to him, how he how he goes about how he hits his approach in the box, it's clear he's a knowledgeable player um, with really good baseball sense, which I think is is something to be noted in today's day in today's day and age. So. It's a really appealing overall product. Um, again, I think I'm right about in that like 14 to 18 range with him. Um, and I, again, if he's a guy that perform with, and we've seen it and we talked about it with the pitchers too, but if he's a guy that gets Maryland into a super regional, maybe even deeper, if they're a dark horse Omaha team and it's because of Shaw, he could go even higher. So I, I think I'm right firm where you had him mocked. Um, and it's going to be, and I'm, and I'm excited to see where him and Tommy Troy go, because those are two that I'm, I'm really excited about. Yeah. I think I'm probably even a little higher. I think I would be confident in him somewhere in that 10 to 15 range, um, depending on how the board fell, but I like him amongst the second tier college hitters. I like him quite a bit. So he'd be in that range for me, but, um, okay. So that's where we stood on our polarizing profiles. You were higher on Bradfield. I was lower. We were both low on Morales. You were a little bit higher on Wilkin. I was lower on Wilkin compared to Morales, but still low on both. You were kind of in the middle on Namala. I was low on Namala. And then I finally decided to like a player with Matt Shaw <laughs> here at the end, who we are both seemingly uh, high or at least in the middle of, of the industry in terms of where we view Shaw. So that's cool. Let us know um, either on Twitter or you can't reply to comments on a podcast, but let us know if you if you are on either extreme for any of these players. I'd uh, be curious to see how you guys are thinking through these players as well, in addition to the industry. But there are a couple of players that I wanted to touch on that I don't think are particularly polarizing, but they've just been impressive. And so I wanted to touch on them. One player who we had mocked in the first round in this edition, and one player who it wouldn't be surprising to me if he entered a mock um, as we kind of got closer towards the draft. Um, we've got two players here, Peter. You know who they are. Do you have any direction you want to go first? Uh, I'll let you kind of run the show here. I'll start with the recency bias because he homered last night um, with Chase Davis, Um, outfielder out of Arizona. He's been excellent this year, um, hitting, I think, I had the numbers, but I think he's hitting like 368 with... He's got, um, so his his career career best slash numbers across the board, he's hitting 378, 507, 750 right now, 16 homers, two shy of 18 as his season best a year ago uh, with 14 doubles. First time he's hit over 300 in a season. So, yeah, with with Chase, um, he's he's obviously drawn the comparisons to Carlos Gonzalez with his swing. It's a very majestic left-handed swing and a very steep bat path. Um, and people were kind of wondering how it would work if he would needed to change his swing to get into this type of production. Um, and it, he's kind of proven that he hasn't really necessarily made a ton of tweaks to it. He's a good defender where I think that he profiles best in right field. He's got a plus arm. Um, he's a good athlete. And then at the plate, I, I've been most impressed with how he's refined his approach and really kind of taken some swing and miss out of his game. He struck out a lot last year. He struck out 66 times and 230 at-bats. This year, he's striking out way less, seeing spin a lot better. Um, he's just he's improved really in every category, and – I'd say it's probably 60 power with 
45, even maybe borderline 50 hit at this point. I'd say more 45 than 50. Um, but it's a you're looking at a plus arm, a guy who's going to stick in right field. I think with in in a pro setting, I think he's got you know 20 20 plus home run upside. So um, I, he's a guy that I think is going to keep trending up as we get towards and closer to draft day. And I, when all said and done, I, he's, he's someone that I don't think makes it outside of the first 28 to 30 picks. Yeah, no, he's been fantastic this year. He ended the year with real contact questions. Uh, I remember just digging into contact and exit velocity combinations for our top 200 college hitters. And he was near the bottom just in terms of overall contact rate. It was a 68% contact rate in his first two seasons. That is up to 80% in 2023. And it's an improvement across the board against all pitch types. I mean, you, you kind of have to, to make that much of an improvement in contact, but specifically with sliders, he was missing 50% of the time on sliders entering the year. That miss rate is down to just 18% on sliders specifically this spring. Uh, that's been fantastic to see. His first two seasons in terms of in-zone miss rate was 24%, which is not a number that you would want to see for a college hitter. This year, it's it's a fairly elite in-zone miss rate, just 9%. That's better than guys like Dylan Cruz at the very top of the class. And he's added this contact while still hitting the ball very hard. He was near the top in terms of average exit velocity, 90th percentile exit velocity. So the power is there. And he's kind of addressed the biggest question. I mean, it was a 34% strikeout rate his freshman year dropped to 22% um, in 2022, and now it's all the way down to 13%. He's walking more than he's striking out, which he's never done. Um, I would have been very shocked to hear someone say preseason that Chase Davis was going to walk more than he's striking out. So that's great to see. I think I've kind of always been one of the lower guys on like the swing aesthetics. I know a lot of people really like the swing. I don't love it that much, but it's working for him. It looks like he's got like an even wider pre-pitch setup, a little more open, and he does take this big lower half leg kick to get to a closed position. I think there's a little bit of movement in his hands that I don't love. So like the swing itself, I'm probably lower on than you, Peter, but looking at the results, it's very hard to to knock him at all. He is a really impressive athlete. He does have power. He has a massive arm. Um, so he's certainly moving himself into the first round, I think, even if we didn't have him there in the mock this this past time so it wouldn't shock me at all to see him go in that 20s range and if he keeps hitting i mean maybe he's middle of the first i don't know yeah and that's and i think again that's what makes this draft so fun is like chase davis that's a guy that i think is some organizations will view absolutely as someone you could absolutely maybe reach for so even if he sneaks his way into like the back teens that wouldn't totally shock me all right, the next player we had here is uh, only leading the country in OPS. That's Nolan Chanuel, uh, first baseman at Florida Atlantic. Right now, he's got a 15-12 OPS. The slash line is ridiculous, as you would expect for someone with, with an OPS. I'm, I'm saying OPS, which is kind of what I, I should not be doing. I've been I've been tricked, Peter. It's ops. Uh, but <laughs> slashing 454, 610, 902. He's got 17 home runs, which is the best he's had in a single season. 14 doubles. He's always had great strikeout and walk rates, but it's also career best in the strikeout department 6% of the time. Um, and he's, stri- or he's walking at 22% of the time. So it's just absurd numbers across the board. It's great contact. It's always been great contact. It's like a 93% end zone contact rate. Um, I've heard that he's even looking better athletically in the field defensively, which is always somewhat of a criticism. 
Um, I, I think model teams are going to be all over Nolan Shanuel just because the batted ball data is so good, the contact so good. Um, but he is he is a little bit weird in terms of how he does it offensively. The swing is Craig Council esque. It's a very high setup. I I don't love the swing. It's honestly kind of surprising to me that he's able to get his hands in such a good position to make so much contact and hit for the power that he does. Um, but he's consistently on time, at least in college. He's hammering 92-plus mile-per-hour fastballs. It's a a 96% contact rate against 92-plus velocity, which I was very surprised to see. I kind of expected to get into the data and see maybe some holes against velocity. Maybe he wasn't seeing that much velocity. Um, and the average fastball velocity that he's facing is like right around 89 miles per hour. So that'll change at the next level. But the fact that that he has performed really well and has made a lot of contact against um, the better fastball velocity that he's seen is encouraging to me. I think maybe the one question mark that you could point to is he does leak out a little bit on secondaries at times, gets a little pull heavy, gets out in front at times. Um, and so how he's able to adjust to that at the next level would be a question. But I mean, he's pretty clearly the top first baseman in the class at this point and is just having a monstrous year. What are your thoughts? I'd say, one, he's definitely the top first baseman in the class. What you mentioned, what I think is interesting about him is defensively he has looked good. He's a little bit nimble over there, and people have, like, if you could probably stick him even in left field or an outfield spot, not center field, obviously, but you could stick him in maybe a corner outfield spot and he'd probably hold his own. No one's going to view him as an outfielder in this class, but I think that once you get into pro ball, even to have that option to stick him out there for a game is, you know, a little bit appealing, but getting into the hitting, which makes him the prospect that he is. It's unbelievable what he's doing. Um, You mentioned the slash line. He's walking almost four times as much as he's striking out. He's hitting for average and power. And if you look at his Cape stats, you're going to, the back of the baseball card isn't, isn't totally all that flashy from the Cape, but he still displayed the stuff that the tools that he did that, that he is this spring that make him so impressive. He had a keen eye at the plate, wasn't swinging and missing a whole lot. Um, He just wasn't finding any grass and he actually heated up towards the end of the year to get up to that 200 average. And he hit well in the playoffs. Um, So he finished on a high note, but Mm -hmm. while the baseball card isn't going to blow you away, there still was that same advanced approach He's still making contact, hitting high-level pitching. Yeah, and he's Even only- with that 200 average as a 342 OBP with 24 walks and 24 strikeouts, so the zone zone discipline looked good. Exactly, and and you mentioned it. I mean, it's a it, he has an in-zone contact rate of 93%, and to say that you quite literally, if you throw Nolan Shanuel a strike, he's going to hit it. That it, you you almost have to take that verbatim. He's only swung and missed twice on fastballs in the zone it's like jacob wilson like levels and, and he is like seemingly was in a league of his own and then shanny wells solidly there with, with all this power <laughs> i was gonna say he's right there with jacob i think overall jacobs are a little bit down with the spin and the change-ups um in zone but like you said fastballs and sliders he is pulverizing um in the strike zone um the swing decisions are exceptional he's got good bat to ball like you mentioned in seeing him on the cape a little bit like specifically against change-ups that are running away from him and breaking balls. He'll pull off it a little bit, which leads to that swing and miss. But again, you're really trying to poke holes in his game. That is, is really strong right now. I'd probably give him a six hit 55 power. It is a really weird operation with how upright he is. 
and how high his hands are. Again, I'm demonstrating a swing that nobody's going to see, but his hands are. Maybe we'll get these video clips out in in some capacity. (laughs) Again, no one wants to see it, but (laughs) his hands are above his head. It's like, geez, how is this kid going to get to velo? How is he going to get on time for all this? But like, it is a really weirdly rhythmic operation with him. Mm -hmm. It's he, it's a consistent operation that he's, he's able to replicate time and time again He's got a little bit of a load, and then his hands just get into hitter's position consistently, and he he just explodes through the baseball. So yeah. it's just he's a very very exceptional hitter. Um, there are like you said, the operation is is one of a kind, but it's like if it ain't broke, don't exactly. fix it. And yeah, so it's not at all similar to Zach Neto, but Zach Neto was also a guy who was criticized for how he got it done at the plate, and he has proven that that he can march pretty quickly to the big leagues without making a change. So sometimes there's just these weird hitters who who do it in a funky way, but they've got the timing and the bat speed and the pitch recognition or whatever it is, whatever combination of athleticism um, and rhythm and timing to make it work. And, and I think I agree with your point. Like you don't have to have this cookie cutter swing to be successful. There are a lot of weird, weird hitters at the big league level who make it work. And, and until you're not making it work, uh, don't, yeah, don't mess with it. Right. And that like to your point, that's not an operation that anyone's gonna touch in unless he displays serious issues in pro ball because at this rate, that operation can get him all the way to the big league. So um it's gonna be very fun to watch how he how he ends up panning out. Absolutely. And and like I said with Enrique Bradfield, I really hope that Nolan Stanley Whale does make it to the big leagues with that approach because people will just love to see it. People love fun, wacky things in baseball. That's part of what makes the sport so great. Um, and Nolan Chenuel has certainly been great so far this season for Florida Atlantic. But, um, Peter, I think that's all for today. Anything else you want to mention before we close here? No, not a lot. Just check out the new mock draft on Baseball America that Carlos put out. And then we've got a ton of stuff for whatever kind of baseball you like, whether it's the pro side, Major League Baseball, college, high school. I think and hope that you'd be able to find anything that you'd <laughs> like there. And if you can't, I'd love to find out what you're looking for. But, Head over to Baseball America for all you want and and keep listening because it it allows us to do what we do. Yeah, a professional plug like like no other. So thank you <laughs> for, uh, for joining me to talk draft, talk draft. We'll keep these podcasts coming as we approach the draft. We're just two months out now, solidly in draft season. When I have people reaching out uh, from other teams who, who, who typically only reach out when the draft is heating up, I know that we are getting into the uh, the key moments on the calendar. So... Uh, it is solidly within that window now. Hope you guys are getting excited about the draft. I know we are uh, here on this podcast, and we always are at Baseball America in general. So thank you for listening. For Peter, I'm Carlos. So long, everybody. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.